What is up, fools? This is the QTR Podcast. Today is October 28th, 2021. First and foremost, I want to shout out the people that make this podcast possible. Those are my patrons, people who sign up and donate a monthly recurring sum to help support the podcast. I'm going to shout out a couple of those patrons, and I'll give you two rules for today's podcast, and we will be well on our way. First and foremost, I want to shout out my exclusive gold and silver providers over at JM Bullion. These are the only people that I buy my gold and silver bullion from. I love JM Bullion. They've been in business over 10 years. They've done over $3 billion in sales and QTR podcast listeners. You guys have your very own rep there. Contact Laura, L-A-U-R-A at jmbullion.com and you can get a personalized touch on your bullion order because it's difficult sometimes. If you don't know what you're doing, you never ordered bullion before, and you don't feel like going through the website and dealing with all the nonsense and bullshit of you know checking to see whether things are in stock. Uh, despite the fact that JM Bullion always has great inventory, you can always reach out for a personalized touch with Laura. She will help you out. Laura at jmbullion.com. The link to them is in my podcast description. This podcast also <clears throat> brought to you by my friends over at Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus. And I have to tell you, as soon as I figure out what the hell I'm trying to say here, I pull up the email. There it is. All right. Lucci and Charlie Bathgate and Wall Street Jesus are now pushing their Trading the Post service, uh, which is called TradingThePost.com. It is a new service brought to you by Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus. All right. Now I'm just going to read because I don't know anything about this, so I can't try to make this uh, script up as I go along. Trading the post is the name of the methodology created by Ron Friedman. Ron took his 20 years of trading experience, combined it with what he learned from Sang Lucci, and created a process-oriented, rules-based approach to options trading. The beauty of trading the post is that it can be used by investors, swing traders, and scalpers alike. And if you're looking for a way to manage risk and still generate significant returns using different combinations of simple option strategies, check out Trading the Post. It is tradingthepost.com. Again, I've actually never used Trading the Post. This is a new service of theirs, but what I can tell you is I've known Lucci for 10 years. He's a great guy. He's an honest guy. He knows the options market well. All the links to his stuff are in his in my podcast description, probably in his podcast description too. If you ask Lucci, I'm sure if you tell him QTR sent you, he will give you a free trial of whatever you want. Uh, he is a good dude and an overall honest guy to do business with. This podcast also brought to you by my brother George Gammon over at Rebel Capitalist Pro. Rebel Capitalist Pro is one of my favorite platforms to go and basically I like to go and just read the forums. Um, but Rebel Capitalist Pro is George Gammon who uh, combined with Chris McIntosh and Lynn Alden and people like Brent Johnson. They come together. They do live Q&A several times a week uh, and basically talk about preserving wealth in the world of out-of-control central banks. The Rebel Capitalist Pro platform, I love it. Uh, they have model portfolios and forums online where everybody is very active. George had a beef with YouTube a couple days ago where they took down his Rebel Capitalist uh, channel, but then they put it back up. So happy to hear that, George. Uh, happier shit is back online. And you can link to Rebel Capitalist Pro right in my podcast description. I love George Gammon. And you should too. By the way, Joe Rogan retweeted his shit when he was trying to get his YouTube channel back online, which I thought that was dope. If we could get George Gammon on Joe Rogan, the world would be a better place. This podcast also brought to you by Doomberg. Doomberg is my favorite new substack to read. It is 100% free. 
I love it. I love reading Doomberg. They, ta- they have a skeptical take on markets. Uh, Doomberg has been featured already in places like the Grant Williams podcast. Um, if you like our spin on things, you will love to read Doomberg. Check them out. Their link is in my podcast description, and it is 100% free to have Doomberg uh, on your mailing list. So, and also, I'm trying to line up an interview with Doomberg too, because I thought it'd be cool to uh, to talk to him and have me ask the questions instead of having them write about whatever they would like. This podcast also brought to you by my friends at Corvus Gold, my friends at Investors Underground, Ken R., Chris Bede, Nicholas Parks, Matthew Zimmer, Jay Mincemeyer, Russ Valenti, Crichton Titus, Camila Soul, and how about some of the longest-running Patreons of mine, like my brother, Max Mulvihill. What's up, dude? Mark Haywood, Kyle Thomas, Darius Kordonsky. I appreciate you guys. Chris Gerard and Sheer Luck. You guys have been supporting me since 2018. I want to shout out founding members of my fringe finance column, Kashumba, Randy Carter, T. Jagiotti, whatever the fuck that says. I don't care. Jamie, A. Farmer, and Harvest Moon Research. Thank you so much for your support uh, of fringe finance, my Substack, And the link to that is in my podcast description as well. I am not a financial advisor. This is not financial advice. This podcast always has a three-drink minimum. Used to be a two-drink minimum, and then shit started to get weird. So we just took it up a notch, and we'll take it up to four if we need to. And with the way CPI is going, we may need to very soon, like yesterday. Regardless, I don't know what I'm talking about, and this is not financial advice, and so you shouldn't take it as such. All right, happy to be here today. I want to talk about what I tweeted about a couple nights ago, which was crypto, Uh, I started to kind of have a little bit of an aha moment. I was walking through the city. I was reading my email and every other tweet and every other email was about this Shiba Inu coin, which of course is a quote unquote coin. It's got about as much value as the trillion dollar coin. All right. (laughs) And that is not to say a trillion dollars. That's to say fucking nothing. All right. This is a digital token that was created basically to mock Dogecoin, which was a crypto that was created basically to mock other cryptos, both of which somehow wound up getting multi-billion dollar market caps. I think Shiba Inu's market cap right now is something like $32 billion. And I'm you know, walking down the street and I'm reading all these tweets and I'm reading all these emails and it's the topic du jour and it's the only thing anybody's talking about online. And I'm just thinking to myself, what is going on here? (laughs) You know, you ever just take a couple of extra steps back and just look at the whole thing and just say, what's going on here? Let me just break it down for you. Get a sip of my coffee here, right? We have the equity markets, all right, and we have the bond markets, which are these multi-trillion dollar pools of liquidity wherein investors, companies get a chance to issue bonds or equity to raise money, and investors get the chance to purchase those bonds to get, you know, a coupon essentially, a a cash flow stream for the length of the bond and then the bond repaid at maturity. Or investors have the opportunity to buy equity, which in essence, Warren Buffett would tell you is you're buying the discounted sum of the future stream of cash flows 
from a company. Those markets make some kind of sense because at least you can understand the risk reward and the exchange of kind of uh, goods and services that are being passed from one person to the next uh, in that situation, right? If I'm General Motors and I go out and sell an ownership stake in my company, then I'm no longer going to have that access to uh, the future cash flows that I will be handing over to whoever decides to buy uh, that share of that company from me. We're agreeing upon a price for that share. Um, in essence, as a buyer, what you're trying to do is you're trying to buy a share in a company for less than what that company is going to return over a certain period of time. And as a seller, what you're looking to do is either raise cash or opportunistically uh, sell stake in the business so that the cash that you raise can then be used, who knows, to fund further expansion, to fund research and development, whatever you want to use it to fund. So the, that market makes sense, right? The equity market makes sense. Um, I mean, it doesn't make sense now because people are buying all kinds of shit that is doesn't even have revenue. Forget about cash flow. Forget about net income. But the concept of that market makes sense. The bond market is relatively similar, right? A company goes out, and we'll just talk about corporate bonds. A company goes out. They issue a bond. The bond has a coupon. Of course, it doesn't make sense in the it, when you factor in the fact that the Fed has manipulated interest rates, but let's just say all things being equal and interest rates are quote-unquote normal, even though they aren't. You know, a company goes out, it sells a bond, it wants to raise money. Uh, the buyer of the bond forks over the money to the company, and in return, they get interest on what it is that they have given the company for X amount of years, and uh, the bond is then repaid uh, in full at maturity, and the person who lent the money to the company gets their interest and their principal back, and the company gets the cash up front to, again, use however it would like to, hopefully in ways that are accretive, meaning ways that will improve the business, will improve profitability, uh, and everything else. So the, the combination total of the bond market uh, and equity markets, and let's just look this up, total bond market and... Okay, so the total size of the bond market in the U.S. is $46 trillion for the U.S. market, according to Securities Industry and Financial Markets Association. And the total size of the equity market is somewhere around $48 trillion, it looks like, as of September 30th, 2021, okay? So here's these two 40-something trillion dollar markets. They are both have a function. Uh, you understand what's going on, what's being exchanged and why. There's fluctuations and recessions and booms and busts and whatever that occur in these markets. Leaving aside the fact that they're both heavily manipulated by the Fed. Let's just let's just, you know, we already know that. We'll move that to another discussion. Okay? Now, you have the crypto market, right? So what is the crypto market? The crypto market is an offshoot market that has kind of developed on its own over the last 10 years, wherein people are trading digital securities, digital tokens, digital currency, back and forth with one another. The crypto market consists largely of assets 
largely, not completely, but largely of assets that aren't really anything tangible in real life. Some of them are tied to tangible items, but a lot of them, like Bitcoin, for instance, you're buying a space on a digital ledger. Uh, same with, uh, you know, Ethereum, with Litecoin, with all these other altcoins that are coming out, with Doge, with Shiba. Basically, all you're buying is a spot in line saying, I bought this at this time for this price, and here I am. I've kind of reserved my spot. And what you're hoping for is you're hoping for psychological buy-in that these cryptos will have value going forward. And you can make whatever argument you want. You can argue that they should have value because they're hedges against inflation. I can't reach my fucking coffee. Hang on. All right, there we go. You can argue that they um, should be hedges against inflation. You sh you can argue that they are better means of you know transacting currency for everyday purposes. You can make whatever argument you want. If you're a Shiba Inu bull, I don't even know what argument you make. You know, my barber tried to pitch me on Shiba Inu like a couple of days ago, and I asked him to explain it to me. And the answer I got was just a big runaround of nothingness. I mean, it was just like, it basically, I think what he was doing was he was just describing a Ponzi scheme. He just didn't know he was describing that, you know. He was like, see, what you got to do is you got to get in. Because once a bunch of other people get in, the price is going to go up. And then when the price goes up, you know, you want to sell your thing to a new guy that's in that thinks that the new price is really what the price is. And I'm like, all right. Like, I didn't say it because dude was cutting my hair and I didn't want him to fuck it up. But I was just like, that sounds a lot like a Ponzi scheme. You know, you're passing around a worthless asset and just bidding it up and bidding it up and bidding it up and hoping the next guy will come in with a bid higher than yours. And next thing you know, you got the housing market in 2008. Right. Remember when they're driving around in that neighborhood and she's like, oh, that house is on the market for four hundred and sixty nine thousand. He bought it for that. He'd let it go for that price or something, you know, in uh, the big short. So that's what happens when the bid dries up. The only problem is that the bid hasn't dried up. Um, and the reasoning for that we'll go into in a second. But so what is the crypto market? The crypto market is now a multi trillion dollar. So let's just call the bond market and the equity market, $100 trillion together in the U.S., okay? The crypto market is probably around $3 trillion right now. If you wanted to add it all up and fully diluted and this, that, and the other, you're probably talking about $3 trillion. So it is safe to say that the crypto market has grown to about 5% probably of what the total bond and equity market is, all right? That is a systemic size, if you want my opinion. $5 trillion. I talked about this when I was talking about Evergrande. People said, oh, is Evergrande going to be the next Lehman moment, the pin that pricks the bubble? You know, I said, ah, $300 billion. You know, the central banks will sweep it under the rug then. But when you talk about $5 trillion, then you're talking about a little bit of a different story. Now, layer on top of the fact that this is an asset class that is brand new, that really doesn't seem to hold any value at all. I mean, you can get through your entire day without using Bitcoin, without needing Bitcoin at any point. You know, I go from my morning getting my coffee until the night when I go to bed and go to the bar and do my whole thing without ever needing Bitcoin. 
other than, you know, the only time I hear about it is when people are trying to sell me on why I should buy it. So, and that's not to say, look, Bitcoin's not going to go up. I'm just making some points here. So you have this $5 trillion market now that has come out of nowhere and I would argue is approaching systemic size, right? $5 trillion is a decent amount of money or $3 trillion, 5% of the total uh, other two markets. If it continues to grow like everybody wants it to, right? Nobody is thinking about what it means. Everybody thinks like, oh, you know, this is what return I'll have in my Coinbase account if crypto continues to grow. But has anybody thought about what it'll mean for the system when crypto grows more? Say crypto becomes a $15 trillion asset class, right? You're now passing around digital whatevers that have no tangible value in the real world, they don't have a commodity value. Now you're now passing around $15 trillion worth of assets that comprise, you know, nearly half of what all total U.S. stocks are valued, nearly half of what uh, the entire U.S. bond market is valued at. And at any instant, because the only thing that's holding it up is confidence it could be repriced lower and it doesn't have anything to do with finding supply of gold. It doesn't have anything to do with uh, a company lowering their cash flow guidance. It's not tied to anything. It just does whatever it wants. People say, oh, well, it's tied to supply and demand. There's only 21 million Bitcoin, you know, and only so many people can have it. Well, that's fine. But you have an entire universe of other altcoins, many of which even Bitcoin bulls admit will eventually be worthless, right? So what people don't factor in is as this market grows, it's going to become more and more of a risk. I mean, we're taking a 10-year-old, you know, quote-unquote asset class that really doesn't seem to have much tangible value, and we're now intertwining it with the global financial system. Okay, MasterCard is dealing in crypto, Visa's dealing in crypto, you know, banks are starting to deal in crypto, the government's starting to regulate crypto. I mean, crypto is kind of starting to make its way everywhere. Now, a lot's going to depend on what regulations the SEC eventually comes out with uh, regarding crypto. But the point is, it's, you know, this Trojan horse that is growing inside of the global financial system. And even at $3 trillion, I mean, it's not enormous, but it's growing to a size where it can really become systemic at some point. Because if somebody decides to pull the plug on crypto, and I don't mean, you know, one person, but I just mean like if crypto's popularity starts to wane and there's a run on all the altcoins and shitcoins and we really see a crypto crash... It could be devastating, you know, it could be devastating. A lot of people are trading crypto on leverage. A lot of people are, you know, using lending their crypto out to try to get interest. A lot of people are using it, you know, uh, a lot of people are buying equities because they're tied to crypto. So in addition to, you know, the $3 trillion in market cap for the cryptos alone, you probably have another couple hundred billion dollars worth of companies in the United States that have increased in value due to their exposure to crypto so all of that kind of comes crashing down all at once 
if you see a run on the crypto market. So the bigger we allow it to get without regulating and the more we allow it to kind of weave itself into the global financial system, the more of an issue we can have when it comes down. Yet what has happened is the market has kind of grown too fast to be stopped. Something that I've talked about before, even when I was making skeptical arguments on Bitcoin and everything, I would say, look, there is a case that this thing just grows so fast that they can't rope it in. And that kind of seems to be what has happened. Although China's measures here with trying to ban crypto seem to make some sense to me. I've put forth an argument that not a lot of people agree with based on your response on Twitter. But that argument is that China could even see, you know, the possibility of some type of global cataclysm coming as a result of crypto and could be saying, hey, I want to get out of the way of this before it even happens. What do we need it for? They're probably thinking, right? We have the digital yuan. We have our own currency. We produce everything in our country. What the hell's the point in shuffling around this other asset that doesn't really have much of a purpose or value when everything's fine here? And I think people in the U.S. would be well served to ask themselves the same question, right? What do we need this for? It's a really great question. It's the one I asked my barber, you know, and the answer was basically you need it because it's going to go up and it's like, all right, but really, why does the next person need it then? Well, they need it because it's going to go up. Okay, well, what does the next person need it for after that? What does the next person need it for after that? Because at some point it's not going to go up and when it starts to come down, what's the argument going to be for buying it? It'll go up again. Eh, It's going to be a tougher sell when it starts to move lower, right? So we have this like fungus growing on the capital markets now in the form of this crypto market. And it's going unchecked. Everyone's just kind of walking around, acting like it's not that big of a deal, saying, oh, we'll regulate it. Companies are saying, oh, we'll deal in it. We'll transact in it. You know, okay, but what do we really need it for? And Shiba Inu and Dogecoin are two perfect examples of really what I think the crypto market is. And this idea I read first on uh, Zero Hedge, so this isn't some uh, great original thought that I've had, but I wanted to at least credit them. You know, that really the the entire crypto market, all it is, is it's a liquidity blow-off valve for all the liquidity the Fed has put out there. You know, the Fed has printed trillions of dollars and kind of handed it out willy-nilly. Interest rates are at zero or close to zero and are going to be for a long time. And so people can't find yield anywhere, right? So they're left to speculate. And you could speculate in bonds, kind of boring. You could speculate in the market, a little bit less boring. Or you could speculate in this burgeoning new asset class where you see stories about people taking $8,000 and turning it into $5 billion. And that is crypto, and that is Shiba, and that is what draws people in. The excess liquidity and the promise of being able to turn a little bit of money into a shitload of money, and it doesn't matter. You know, my barber, it doesn't matter to him that he can't explain what Shiba Inu is. He just wants it to go up. And I think a large portion of the crypto market feels the same way about whatever garbage they own. And so this is why I said yesterday on my Twitter that, 
you know, even if the asset class of cryptocurrencies lives, the damage is still going to be severe for a lot of these people because Shiba Inu isn't going to live on forever. Dogecoin isn't going to live on forever, right? They'll Maybe they'll live on and they'll have some bid, but it's not going to be what the bid is for them now, right? Bitcoin may live on forever. The question is, what are people going to be paying for it in the future? You know, what's going to happen? When we have that first real crash in crypto, a lot of paradigms and a lot of axioms are going to be challenged. It's going to be the first time that people take a really hard look at why they own crypto to begin with. What is this doing for me? Because it's easy to justify owning anything when the price is going up. I could stack an entire warehouse full of rubber dildos if I thought that they were going to rise in price 5,000% over the next two years. That's an easy case to make. But if the price of dildos crashes 80% in two years and I'm left sitting in front of this warehouse full of rubber dicks, how am I going to explain that? (laughs) You know, how do I explain that to people? I'm going to have to take a good long, hard look at those rubber dicks and ask myself, Chris, you're 40 years old. What the fuck are you doing with a warehouse full of rubber dicks? You know, and that's the truth. And that moment is a moment that a lot of crypto investors are going to have, but only after the first crash. When that first 80% drawdown happens in Doge, right? A lot of people are going to be left wondering, what is left for me here? When, it, when the asset class becomes regulated so much so that a lot of the pumping that occurs in crypto becomes, you know, blatantly illegal and the government makes a statement that, hey, we're not going to stand for it. You know, we want to keep the tax situation in check and we want to keep we want to treat this as a security. All of a sudden, a lot of the enthusiasm and euphoria will die out and you'll be left holding these things asking, what do I do with it? Except. You know, when you have a warehouse full of rubber dicks, at least you have something. You can melt them all down and then you got, you know, 10 tons of vulcanized rubber or whatever that you can go remake into tires because you have a commodity. But when you have a digital asset that just tanked 80%, you have an 80% loss of capital and a big physical nothing to hold on to at night, which I think would make the situation even worse. The point is that You know, as I said, crypto is just a blow-off valve for the amount of liquidity that's being jammed up the system's ass. It has to go somewhere. I wrote a couple days ago, if there were no crypto markets, Tesla would have a $3 trillion market cap and assorted shitcos would be be 3x their all-time highs and the S&P would pass the NASDAQ. You know, a little bit of hyperbole, but who knows where equity markets would be if the inflows from crypto markets made their way into the stock market, and that could happen. You know, in a big drawdown in crypto, well, where's that, where are the, you know, remaining 20% of your former capital going to go? Well, it could go into something less risky, and that might appear to be a company like Tesla to you, or to the markets, or to an index fund, or maybe to something like gold and silver. And so that's why this great rotation trade that I've predicted out of crypto, I think, will eventually happen. The only question is timing. And, you know, look, if I miss the 50x run-up between now and then, it's not going to kill me because I have a certain risk tolerance that I accept with my capital. And that's where I stand on that. 
you know, I'm just not willing to allocate a large portion of capital uh, with how far crypto has come. I have my crypto equity plays that I like, and I, I hang on to them, and that's that. You know, they react when crypto does well or when it does poorly, and I'm okay with that. But again, Shiba Inu is a troll coin of another troll coin, which isn't even really a coin. That's just a name for something digital. Just like I said about Dogecoin, that $30 billion is just waiting to go poof up into the air and disappear. It's literally trillions of dollars in excess. It's trillions of dollars in excess that's out there. And the excess will have to be dealt with at some point, And it'll have to be reined in at some point. You know, just as excess often is on various types of market. It's just that we've never had this much liquidity before. So who knows exactly how long it's going to take for that rain in to happen and where that capital is going to wind up uh, and eventually really what this next crash is going to look like. Um, but I do think I'm alarmed by how much crypto has woven itself into the financial fabric of our system for an asset class that isn't really anything. It's a bunch of digital nothing, you know? And that's, if the lumber industry was kind of weaving itself into the banking industry and people were starting to exchange lumber as money, I'd be like, all right, well, this is okay because at the end of the day, you can always use the lumber to buy a house. You can use the lumber to do this, to do that. You know, it's kind of based on a physical, tangible commodity. You can take delivery of it. But digital assets, when you turn the modem off, they go away. When you lose internet access, they go away. The asset ceases to exist without a digital connection. And yes, you say, hey, Chris, it's 2021. We're living in a digital age. Yeah, we are. You know, I get that. And I get we're not regressing and we're not going backward. It's just a new paradigm of risk to take. And it's still on the fringe calling these things assets, in my opinion. I mean, unless there is some big grand psychological breakthrough where the whole world collectively agrees that these things are worth something together and it just becomes, you know, a fiat digital asset. I mean, is it insane? Yeah. Is it any more insane than, you know, it's actually more insane than the central bank fiat that we have because at least they have you know, or purport to have some gold and reserves to back it up. This is just kind of out there. And people say, well, that's the, that's the benefit, man. It's peer-to-peer. It's decentralized. Okay. We'll see how decentralized it is after regulations go into place over the next year, two years, three years. And as the quote-unquote asset class continues to evolve. <clears throat> you know, Peter Schiff made a good point a couple of months ago on his podcast when he was talking about all these banks that had decided to implement uh, the ability to trade cryptos for their clients and people that cite that as adoption and say, oh, well, this is proof that Bitcoin's going to be here for a long time. And Peter made the point that really, no, it's proof that the banks want more fees. I mean, JP Morgan puts into place Bitcoin trading, not because they believe in Bitcoin, you know, the same reason they let you trade soybeans. They don't want to bet the whole company on soybeans, but they want to give you the ability to transact in it, which will then result in a fee and business for them. Uh, and so that's probably the thought process behind a lot of adoption and a lot of, you know, 
wallets and exchanges and things like that going online. It's people looking to make U.S. dollars from watching you trade your cryptocurrencies. It's not people looking to make, you know, Bitcoin for you trading U.S. dollars. It's the other way around. I want to update on a couple more things that have been going on. Tesla has still been skyrocketing higher here over the last week on a continued gamma squeeze. Uh, <clears throat> you know, the question, let's just, let me say two things about Tesla. I was going to write about these things, but maybe I'll just talk about them now. The first thing is that serious questions need to be asked about the options market here. I said this on my last podcast. I'm going to say it again. You know, as this thing moves higher and higher now, now we have a $1 trillion equity. Say it goes to $2 trillion. Say it goes to $3 trillion. I think it'll split probably again. Maybe it'll go up again after that. How long are we going to let this happen? And, and, and you know, Zero Hedge put out a good tweet uh, yesterday. They said uh, something very similar to kind of what I've been asking over the last couple of months uh, or maybe even the last year. But they said, uh, where the hell is it? Dear Gary Gensler, now that the SEC is aware of the gamma spoofing that Archigos slash Bill Huang utilized to manipulate stocks higher, can you assure investors that no other investor CEO is doing the same? And this is exactly what I have been talking about over the last year. I believe that this spoofing that they're talking about is what I had noticed in starting in late January 2019 in Tesla. Now, I can't prove it, and it's all just my opinion, but it certainly seems shady that the company would just skyrocket higher out of nowhere right around the same time that big uh, call buys started to come into the options market. So that has continued, and I just want to reiterate my stance that we need to look into that you know, I was reading another article. This one was about Kathy Wood that I wanted to bring up. Uh, this is from Zero Hedge, and it's called Despite Tesla's Raging Success, Kathy Wood's ARK ETF is still down 2% on the year. And I'm going to read this to you, and then I want to give you some of my reaction. There's no doubt that Tesla's been the story this week. The stock rocketed higher by more than $100 per share or several Ford market caps on Monday to open the week following a Morgan Stanley upgrade and news that Hertz will be buying 100,000 vehicles from the automaker. But even this meteoric rise hasn't been enough to keep Kathy Wood's flagship ARK ETF ahead of the S&P 500 so far this year. Despite the fact that Tesla makes up 10% of the $21 billion ETF and that Tesla is up 45% this year, ARK is still down by 2% so far in 2021. The inability to outperform the market can be attributed to 34 of ARK's 46 holdings falling since early August, Bloomberg data showed. Names like Roku and Zoom have weighed the heaviest on the ETF's performance, once again proving exactly how integral Tesla has been to Wood's success. And this is the point I want to harp on, right? First off, by the way, Robinhood crashed this week on earnings. And so you if you had been reading my blog, my fringe finance blog, you would see that Robinhood was the short end of a pair trade that I uh, floated out there a couple weeks ago. That is uh, on my blog, Fringe Finance. I made that article for free, and the link to that is in my podcast description. Um, basically saying, hey, you know, Robinhood IPO'd at a bubble valuation. Uh, it then warned about Q3. It got driven up by a gamma squeeze and retail idiots. It was trading well above that, and it should be trading in the high 20s, in my opinion. They came out with a shit Q3, uh, and the stock fell from 41 to, I think, about 35, where it is now. So down almost 20% uh, 
uh, or maybe closer to 15% since then. Uh, but if they can't get their shit together, maybe a little more to fall because the company still is in bubble valuation territory, in my opinion. So Kathy Wood was buying. This was what was great. She was buying the quote-unquote dip in Robinhood after the gamma squeeze, not realizing that the stock's price was completely artificial. I think the stock went to like 52 and then it dipped into the 40s and she was buying. Like, oh, I'm buying the dip. It's like there's no dip. You know, it was an artificial bid at 52, and now you're buying the still artificial bid at 45. The pile of shit IPO'd at 37 and couldn't even catch a bid at that point. It couldn't even catch a bid at 37. You know, but to her, dip buying is dip buying is dip buying, and it's a strategy that really, no matter what the valuation is of a specific company, I guess her strategy is you just buy the dip no matter what if it's a dip. Um, which, of course, is perfect if you are interested in watching whether or not the falling knife uh, you know, fallacy uh, is going to claim her as a victim. And this is don't catch a falling knife, right? Stop buying on the way down. Don't average down. You can average down maybe in an equity where there's a firm foundation of earnings and assets to fall back on where you could say, all right, well, look. Well, this company has $10 billion worth of real estate, so it's got a tangible value of blank. So maybe I'll, you know, maybe I'll buy it down to that spot, assuming the uh, the foundation holds up. But in a situation like this, where the most of the companies she's buying in the flagship ETF have such egregious valuations that there really is no floor. So when you're catching a falling knife, the knife really still has a lot of room to fall lower even though in your brain you think you're buying the dip. So Wood was buying the dip in Robinhood, and then, of course, Robinhood came out and posted shit earnings and tanked again. And it's shit like that that is part of the reason, even though it wasn't mentioned in this article, but it's part of the reason that this ARK ETF can't really outperform the market despite the fact that Tesla is going absolutely bananas. Now, she's been selling Tesla as it has been moving higher, so as to keep, I think, you know, her maximum 10% weighting on the name in the ETF. But she's been selling it for, you know, uh, sizing purposes. But even the astronomical performance of Tesla hasn't been able to buoy her ARC fund. And it's because all of these other names that she's buying, um, you know, anyone could make the argument that they are as equally as overvalued as Tesla... Uh, except they're not subject to this big, giant gamma squeeze that's happened in Tesla. And if that gamma squeeze doesn't happen, here's the point that I like. The point in this article is, once again, proving how integral Tesla has been to Wood's success. If Tesla doesn't happen, if there's no December 2019 to you know summer 2021 run-up in Tesla, Kathy Wood does not become the household name asset manager that she is today. Which is why I continue to harp on the fact that I think it's so important to find out what the hell is going on with shares of Tesla. Maybe it's nothing. Maybe I'm imagining things. You know, I've been watching tape for 10 years. I'd like to think I can notice something when things, you know, smell a little bit weird. Uh, Which to me, certainly the run-up in Tesla has smelled weird to me. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's just the market, you know, revaluing the company as, a, as an AI company, and I'm just too stupid to notice. 
But I don't know. When you look at that 10-year chart of Tesla and you see from 2012 to 2019 trade basically in a straight line and then you see a straight line up and you ask yourself, okay, well, what changed? What changed here? Well, nothing. We were entering a pandemic, basically. That's what changed. We were entering a giant recession and then the Fed flooded the market with money. I mean, in terms of business operations, nothing really changed. In terms of the public's ability to buy call options, something definitely changed. You know, Robinhood, quote unquote, empowered investors uh, to go in and buy call options. Now, are there other bigger players in the options market in Tesla? Maybe. If there are, you know, are their purchases legitimate? Or are they for nefarious means? I don't know. But certainly, I think it's something worth looking into. And I think... When we watch Kathy Wood and we see the headlines and, you know, even Ross Gerber, you know, these are people that would not be in the spotlight the way that they are, but for this interesting anomaly in shares of Tesla, what I think is an interesting anomaly. Now, maybe I'm wrong and maybe those two are just visionaries and I don't get it. And if that's the truth, then that's fine. If that's the objective truth, that's fine. I will stand back and admit that I'm an idiot in that case. It's the same deal with Bitcoin, you know? Bitcoin goes to a trillion and it becomes adopted as worldwide money in 10 years by all central banks. Then I will step back and say, I am an idiot, okay? I'm a moron. And you know what? Wouldn't be the first time that I've said I'm an idiot. Wouldn't be the first time I've said I got something wrong. And I don't even mind doing that, you know? My discussion here isn't to just, you know, isn't to make some point and to try to prove all you people wrong that disagree with me, it's to just try to arrive at what the objective truth is for interests of clarity. You know, I just, there's so much fluffery and nonsense and bullshit when it comes to, you know, asset managers and their PR firms and uninformed investors spouting nonsense and, you know, financial news hosts spouting nonsense and their guests spouting nonsense. That I'm just, I'm far more interested in just trying to arrive at the objective truth um, and I just thought that that would be an interesting point to note that outside of Tesla, outside of the, the gains in Tesla, the rest of this woman's portfolio has just been taking a large shit. OK, so if you I would I'd be interested if somebody wants to create some kind of like chart of her returns ex Tesla, you just want to take out Tesla and see like what her returns would be. I'd be interested in seeing that because it feels like all the time I'm just watching her buy the dip in stuff other than Tesla that continues to go lower. So, you know, I have no clue, but uh, I'd be interested in knowing what the performance is without Tesla involved. Another interesting piece of news out yesterday um, in my bull case for uranium, and that is that Japan has now called nuclear key, quote unquote key, to its decarbonization goals. You know, on my last podcast, I talked about the two things that were driving my bull case in uranium. One was Sprott who is now being joined by another asset manager starting a uranium uh, trust. And the other was the adoption of nuclear energy by major countries around the world. Um, At the time, during my last podcast, I noted that, you know, the UK and France and Japan and all these other major countries were considering it. They were considering small modular reactors. They were considering not uh, decommissioning nuclear reactors they had online in order to help their countries transition to uh, you know, net zero energy, away from fossil fuels, if you will. Well, that case just got a big pat in the back. Um, you know, it was wasn't much sooner after I talked about 
Japan potentially adopting nuclear, China potentially adopting nuclear, that um, Japan has come out and done one further and basically said it's going to be crucial to their strategy. So I'm going to read you uh, something I wrote on October 27th. This is from my blog, Fringe Finance. You can uh, sign up for free. It's in my podcast description. If you're interested, I write almost daily on this blog. Uh, And here's what I wrote. Days after the UK said that nuclear would be, quote, at the heart, quote, of its decarbonization strategy, Japan has now called nuclear reactor restarts key to achieving its own green energy goals. This marks a far quicker global adoption of nuclear during the ESG age than I had anticipated and, in my opinion, will likely bode well for my long-term uranium bull case. Last Friday, Japan adopted a new energy policy that went little noticed by those participating in the uranium market. So this news broke last week, and I really I didn't see much of a reaction. The plan seeks to bring the country to carbon neutrality by 2050, according to Associated Press. And while this plan is mostly in line with what many other countries are implementing, the proverbial angel in the details for uranium investors may be as follows. Japan, and this is a quote, from the AP, Japan has been undecided over what to do about its nuclear power industry since the 2011 Fukushima plant disaster, but it now says reactor restarts are key to meeting emissions targets as Japan tries to step up in the global effort against climate change. You know, a big part of my uranium bull case was that common sense would dictate nuclear would have to be a part of ESG investing going forward, and that is exactly what looks to be taking place here in Japan. Fumio Kishida, who is replacing Prime Minister Yoshihide Suga, is officially a, quote, backer of nuclear plant restarts. The report notes, uh, and I go a little bit further in depth talking about uh, the state of some of their restarts and basically showing the operable nuclear power capacity for the country, which has really dwindled since like 2008, 2007. But You know, if the rest of the world wants to put this continued emphasis on ESG investing, as I noted in my last podcast that they're doing, they're going to have to find a solution, okay? And nuclear is that solution. It's just that not everybody knows it yet, (laughs) you know? It is really, it's like the Higgs boson. We know if you just plug it into the, the standard model at the right spot, it makes everything work. And nuclear is kind of the same way. You just got to kind of plug it into the global nuclear, I mean, the global energy picture, and we will know uh, that things will work the way that we want. It's just a question of everybody arriving at that conclusion all at the same time. Finally, I just want to comment on my friend George Gammon being pulled off YouTube a couple of days ago. Uh, Now, for what reason, I don't know, but YouTube appeared to have banned uh, George Gammon's Rebel Capitalist channel. They did the same thing actually to Anthony Pompliano's channel a couple of weeks ago. I saw Pompliano flipping a shit on Twitter that they had took down his channel with something like several hundred thousand subscribers. You know, look, for all the differences that I have with Pompliano, I believe he should be able to be out there and say whatever he wants and make his case for Bitcoin and have his channel. You know, it was later revealed that it got taken down because YouTube, you know, quote unquote, mistakenly uh, mistook one of his things as some kind of Bitcoin spam, whatever. That's, you know, a terrible excuse, because if you spend years and years and years like Pompliano building up a subscriber base of which I am not a part of, I'm not, you know, the dude's biggest fan. But what I want to say is 
I respect his ability to be able to be out there and preach to his audience, okay? There's no doubt that Pompliano works hard to produce content. You know, he does a podcast every day. He's active on Twitter. That shit is not fucking easy. I do it. I've been doing it for 10 years. People say, ah, you just kind of like, you know, you just float by. You're a content creator, whatever. No, it's like you actually like it takes some effort. You have to book people. You have to fucking find topics to talk about sometimes. You know, for the most part, I don't really come on and talk about shit if I don't have anything to say. But it's still work at that point. You know, and I leave myself, I don't have a thing where, oh, I got to publish every so many days or, oh, I need to write something every day. I just do whatever I want whenever I want to and get things off my mind. For people like Pompliano and George Gammon, who are professional content creators, okay, these guys make thumbnails for their videos. Somebody said to me, like, oh, why don't you make thumbnails? You can get more viewers. I'm like, because I don't care. How's that for an answer? But these guys make thumbnails, right? They're fucking professionals. They're YouTube pros. They have collectively hundreds of thousands of people that follow them. All right, to just go in and scrap a whole person's channel for fucking Pompliano to wake up in the morning and see his channel has been taken down from YouTube with no explanation, that's bullshit. Okay, you reserve the right to take down whatever you want and that's fine. You're a private company and you can curate the content as you would like. We could get into whether or not you become a publisher at that point, but that's a different argument for a different day. Let's just say all things being equal... You have the right to take down whatever you'd like. If somebody spends years bringing content to your platform and bringing viewers to your platform and building up a subscriber base of hundreds of thousands of people, it's just bad business to just hack their legs out from underneath them and shut their channel down without any warning. It's bullshit, okay? To shut it down without an explanation. I went through this. I got a strike on one of my videos you know, with Dave Column years ago, and I appealed it, and I sent all these messages, can you please tell me what I said wrong, and they said nothing. That's just bad business. It's like seeing uh, a subscription of yours charge an extra $300 to your credit card, and you call customer service, and you say, why is this on there? And people just say, well, I don't know. I can't give you an answer. We'll reverse it, but I can't give you an answer. Party is going to be like, well, what the fuck happened in the first place? And In that vein, I side with Pompliano, and I side with George Gammon. You can't just shut down a channel with hundreds of thousands of subscribers on it with no reason, you know? So whatever things YouTube has in place, you know, whatever, like, acne-faced fucking, like, wedgie-having nerds they're empowering with the ability to just shut down a YouTube channel... Uh, arbitrarily because they feel like something, uh, you know, may not be right or they don't agree with somebody's take on, uh, you know, social issues or whatever criteria they have internally. You have to offer up an explanation to these content creators. You can't just blindside them out of nowhere and shut their shit down. And you leave fucking people like George Gammon and Pompliano on Twitter, you know, saying to their hundreds of thousands of followers, well, what the fuck's happened? How come they have to go about getting an explanation like that? You send them this nebulous, you've been shut down for violation of our terms. YouTube, I respect your right to do it, but it's just bad business. They even shut down some left-wing channel the other day. I forget what it was called, NVM or something. You know, but apparently like some big like left-wing station. They just shut it down. They didn't give them an explanation or anything. It's not like, here's what you did wrong. Here's where you violated our policy. And, you know, those policies are written that they can basically shut down your channel for whatever they want. 
But it's going to bite them in the ass, not just from a censorship perspective, but just from it being bad business. People are going to want to go to Rumble. They're going to want to go to other platforms because they know that they're not going to get shut down like that. You know, that's part of the reason that I moved to Substack. I moved to Substack because, you know, I had a discussion with somebody that worked there. And I said, the most important thing for me is to be able to say whatever I want and not have to worry about whether or not my content is going to get taken down tomorrow. And they said, no, 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 you own your email list, you own your content, you know, there's no censorship, no nothing. I said, all right, fine. That's what was most important to me. That's why I'm on Substack. If another platform could have guaranteed that, I would be there. But they're not. Substack beat everybody to the punch. That's why I'm now writing under Fringe Finance, my new column. Have I mentioned it yet? It's in the podcast description. But the point of the matter is, you know, I'm choosing to devote my time and my resources and my effort to build up a readership there, just like Gammon and Pompliano spent their time to build up their audience. And again, it has nothing to do with whether ideologically I agree with their content and has everything to do with you can't just blindside your content creators. It's bullshit. It's a bullshit way to do business. And for that, I will stick up for fucking Pompliano. You know, even though he said he was going to come on my podcast and never did. That's okay. That's all right. Because I stand with him on this issue. We can be united. We can have a kumbaya moment, Pomp. If you want to have me on or you want to come on my podcast, we can start by talking about this, right? And we'll hold hands and we'll sing kumbaya together. And then we can spend the rest of the time arguing and drinking. Whatever you'd like. But I have to agree with them here. YouTube, you guys got to get your shit together. That's why Joe Rogan retweeted fucking George's tweet saying, I don't know why I got shut down because he knows it's bullshit, you know? And so the narrative that this is bullshit, what you were doing is now going to far surpass whatever you may have accomplished by, you know, censoring people by shutting the shit down to begin with. It has officially become counterintuitive. So how about you just knock it the fuck off? How does that sound? Huh? Good. All right, fools. I'm out of here today. I will speak to you all in a couple of days. Peace.